0: Luke chapter 13 will be the subject of our attention today. We'll be starting out in verse 1 of Luke chapter 13. And so if you have a Bible with you today, and I hope that you do, or you've got a device or something that's got biblical text on it, come on through, brother. Then I hope you'll find your way to Luke chapter 13, and we'll pick up there in just a few moments. But I want to share with you a message that I titled today, The Greatest Tragedy. Tragedy, it's all around us. Our brother mentioned it even in his prayer this morning. Tragedy captivates us. Oxford's online dictionary defines tragedy this way. An event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress, such as a serious accident, crime, or a natural catastrophe. I I just wonder as we get started here today, what, what comes to mind when you think of the word tragedy? What, what kind of images pop into your head? For, for some of us, this word tragedy conjures up memories of personal experiences in our own lives. Maybe they were auto accidents. Maybe they were natural disasters that we endured in our own. Maybe it's the loss of someone that we love. Or maybe when you hear the word tragedy, you think of the endless cycle of news that reports tragedies of mass shootings and hurricanes and wars and earthquakes and wildfires and floods and tornadoes and epidemics and diseases and on and on and on the news cycle seems to go. For some of you, when you, when you think of the word tragedy, you, you think of Sandy Hook Elementary or Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School or, or Virginia Tech where parents who said goodbye to their children didn't know that was going to be the last time that they said goodbye to those children or maybe you think of Orlando's Pulse nightclub or or Las Vegas at the music festival or El El Paso's Walmart incident just earlier last month all of which have been the sites of these vile evil mass shootings We've even heard from a team earlier here today that sought to bring relief to Puerto Rico where about 3,000 individuals were killed when Hurricane Maria's path crossed that island nation back in 2017. And if you've been watching the news, you know that Hurricane Dorian is now a powerful Category 5 hurricane. That's growing in strength and threatening to bring tragedy to much of our nation's east coast. Storms like this capture our attention because the potential for tragedy is so great and so present in these storms. But even as this storm continues to brood out on the Atlantic, the news cycle was broken yesterday with yet another mass shooting in Odessa, Texas where a traffic stop turned into a shooting rampage for a crazed individual who ultimately left five individuals dead, 21 individuals injured before he was killed by the police there in Texas. Tragedies like this often cause us to ask questions of God. Like, where was God in the midst of all of this? Does God's goodness and his wisdom, which exceeds our own, Does it require that events like this happen to punish evil? Well, in today's passage, we're going to encounter a couple of tragedies. But there's no question about where God was in the midst of the tragedies that we're going to encounter in today's text. Because in the person of Jesus, God was there in the midst of the people whom he loved. He was treading their sod. He was breathing their air. He was preaching to them the good news that he had come to save them and to welcome them into an eternal kingdom with no more tragedies. And maybe you, as you gathered here in this place on this day, maybe you're the sort of person who tends to want an answer from God when you see bad things happening to good people. Maybe you're the sort of person who wants to see the reason behind it all. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see a lesson from Jesus that tragedies on earth ought to remind us of our status as sinners in relation to the God who created us. And they ought to drive us to consider our own eternal standing before God while there is still time to turn away from our sins and to turn toward him. In a restoration. Join me now in Luke chapter 13 as we see Jesus teaching about this in the midst of these crises. These tragedies that are happening among the people of the Jews in his day. If you will, let's stand together to honor the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, that is to Jesus... About the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose those 18? on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling them this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, behold, For three years, I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The opening verse of the chapter that we've just read informs us that this occasion has not changed in the sense of what's happening from the previous chapter in Luke chapter 12. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, Jesus has been preaching. He's gone into this extended sermon that began at the beginning of Luke chapter 12, right after he'd been in the home of the Pharisee who you remember Jesus called out for cleaning the outside of the cup, but not the inside. And then Jesus launches into this sermon, which begins with telling the people to beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And then as Jesus goes on in this message, his preaching has much to say about the coming judgment of God. Now Jesus is on his travels From the area of Galilee, his hometown area, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He has now set his face on Jerusalem, says that he is going there to ultimately redeem mankind through the work that he will do on the cross. But as he's going, as he finds the opportunity to preach, he drives home the urgency of the work that he's doing, the urgency, the urgent need of individuals to respond to that work with repentance and faith. (coughs) and he does that by speaking of the judgment that is looming and so this sermon that he gives beginning in luke chapter 12 verse 1 is is a sermon that is full of messages about god's judgment in regards to hypocrisy he warned the people in verses 2 and 3 that there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed nothing hidden that will not be known accordingly he says whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. That's a message of judgment. Then he instructs the people to fear the God who could cast them into hell rather than fearing their fellow men who can only do them physical harm to the extent of their death. Furthermore, in verses 8 and 9, he makes it clear that those who confess him before men will be confessed before the angels of God by him. Whereas those who deny him before men will be denied by him. Again, a message of judgment, pending judgment. He warned in a parable that our souls could be required in an instant. And the ultimate outgrowth of that lesson was that we should be rich toward God rather than storing up treasures on earth for ourselves here. That was the message that he drove home in verse 21 of Luke chapter 12. Then he taught in verses 35 to 48 that all people should be watchful. They should be ready for his return, which could happen at any moment. And then last Sunday in the latter verses of chapter 12, we saw Jesus mentioning how he came to bring division on the earth. And he taught how every man and every woman ought to prepare to meet the judge of humanity while there is still time, while they are on the way to appear before the magistrate, to settle before they get there, lest they be turned over to the judge and thrown into prison until they pay the very last cent. This is not happy-go-lucky sort of preaching from Jesus. There, there are many churches that desire just to preach a fluffy, happy sort of message. But ultimately, Jesus shows us that there's a very important decision that every individual needs to make because there is a coming judgment. And Jesus drives that home so clearly in the sermon that we're in the midst of here as we get into Luke chapter 13. And Luke ties all of this together with a common thread. Jesus is at this same occasion, he says there in chapter 13 verse 1 he's still preaching that individuals need to be reconciled to God and going about his work while there is still time but someone from the crowd and we don't get names of who that is there, there are multiple individuals according to the Greek text they come to him and they bring this news of a tragedy that has happened And we just kind of wonder, like, why would you, in the midst of a sermon on Jesus' judgment, like, why, why would you interrupt him with news of a tragedy? You know, maybe you're just trying to take away the conviction of the moment. But maybe these individuals really just wanted to know what Jesus had to say as God in the flesh about this great tragedy that they had learned about. Maybe we too, if we were in that same sort of situation, We tell Jesus about the tragedies that are happening all around us. So that we could see, we could know, we could hear what he had to say about these tragedies. Does Jesus cause tragedies like these? We might want to ask him. Are these tragic events commissioned by him? Does he cause tragedy to strike certain individuals so that he can bring about God's wrath? Is the misfortune of others a sign that God's favor is not upon them? Well, I invite you today to circle up around the Lord as we listen to hear what he has to say about tragedy. And what you're going to find is this. Jesus uses the tragedies of this world to point us to the greater tragedy that awaits if we reject his grace and refuse to repent. Let me say that again. Jesus uses the tragedies of this world to point us to the greater tragedy that awaits us if we reject his grace and if we refuse to repent. In order to show this idea in Jesus' teaching here in this passage, I want to consider three types of tragedy that appear here in this passage. And I want to show you how Jesus uses the earthly tragedies that are encountered amongst the people of the Jews as he's walking their side to point us to the greatest of all tragedies. And here's the first tragedy that appears in this passage that's worth our consideration. Atrocity. Atrocity is not the greatest tragedy. Now, atrocity is, by definition, an extremely wicked or cruel act, typically involving some physical violence and injury. It's a type of tragedy that's brought on by the evil intentions of other individuals. And that's an apt description for the event that some people in the crowd report to Jesus here in Luke chapter 13, verse one. Now, we don't have any other accounts other than what we see here in this verse, in these verses, ultimately, that would cause us To have an understanding of what this tragedy might have been. It's lost to the historical records. We don't have any extra biblical accounts. But what we contain here gives us a pretty vivid reality of an event that has happened. That was very tragic for the people who were living in Jesus' day. Apparently a group of Galileans... Had lost favor with Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was that Roman governor who would soon be involved in Jesus' murder trial. Condemning him to death. But they appear here before Pontius Pilate. And they've lost favor with him in some way. And such that he mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. The text tells us here. That is while they were carrying animals to the place of sacrifice in order that they might be slaughtered as sacrifices of God, they themselves were slaughtered by the Roman army under Pontius Pilate's command. The blood of these Galileans and the blood of their sacrificial animals had been mingled together on the ground in the aftermath of this event. This was a heinous death faced by those who were only seeking to please God. With their sacrifices. That's an atrocity. Yet apparently those who heard about this. Must have thought that this must be some sort of display of God's wrath. And we can understand why that might be the case right. Not only were their sacrifices not able to be carried out. When they were taking sacrifices to God. But they themselves became sacrifices in the process. As they were murdered under the wrath of this Roman governor. And the people just assumed that God's hand must have been in the midst of this atrocity that these Galileans faced. It was as if they were saying, now tell us, Jesus, why did God react like this to those Galileans? But they didn't get the response that they were expecting. As a matter of fact, Jesus pointed out just how presumptuous these individuals had been. He confronted their presumptions with a question. Do you suppose that the Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this faith? And and I just got to wonder, do you ever look at a tragedy? Do you ever look at someone who's going through a difficult time in their life? Or do you look at a big event that you find in the news and, and think to yourself, those people must have gotten what was coming for them. Some individuals had that sort of idea in mind when a great Earthquake struck the voodoo-tolerant country of Haiti back in 2010, killing what some individuals estimate to be around 160,000 people. Others made this same claim when a mass shooter killed 49 individuals in the gay nightclub down in Orlando back in 2016. Well, I just want to say, if you ever presume God's judgment to be at play when tragedy strikes then you ought to put yourself in the shoes of these newsbreakers who speak to Jesus in verse 1. Because Jesus makes it clear that none of us should jump to such conclusions. For when we presume that earthly tragedies like earthquakes or mass shootings happen as a result of sin, it's as if Jesus steps in and asks, so do you think that you're less of a sinner because a mass shooting hasn't happened at your church do you think that you are less under god's wrath because your house hasn't been crumbled under the earthquake you see lurking just beneath this surface of our notions that the suffering of others is a result of their greater sinfulness is a dangerous self-righteous pride And we may be tempted when tragedy strikes to point a long finger at those impacted and say, you had this coming. But as Jesus shows us, when tragedy hits someone else, rather than judging them, we should judge ourselves. And perceiving the thoughts of those who were newsbreakers, Jesus shatters the false conclusions of those who are bearing the news. As he asserts in verse 3, I tell you no. And, and an emphatic no in the original Greek text. I tell you no. That is no. Pilate's atrocity wasn't an instrument of God's judgment against greater sinners than you. If that's what you're thinking, then you're wrong, he tells them. And friends, let me just give you a general principle here. It is foolish to proclaim a tragedy to be God's wrath when he has not explicitly revealed it as such. John Milton was an old and frail and blind English poet when he was visited one day by King Charles II of England. Now Milton was a Puritan, and the Puritans had a great influence in the trial of treason that had led to the beheading of this king's father, King Charles I. And so speaking to the poet, the son of the king that had been said, the the new king, said, your blindness is a judgment from God for the part you took against my father. But this Puritan poet replied, if I have lost my sight through God's judgment... What can you say of your father who lost his head? You see, if we're going to hold to the supposition that God's judgment is seen in earth's calamity in every circumstance, then we too are going to have some explaining to do. For example, why are churches and orphanages often more numerous among the devastation of natural disasters than casinos? And why are Christians often numbered among the dead? Why didn't a hurricane or an earthquake strike the Nazis at the height of their evil in Germany? Why do so many murderous dictators ripen with old age while so many missionaries die young in their pursuit of God's will? Why had the saints throughout church history, the apostles and even Jesus, faced death by persecution? We clearly should not assume that God's wrath is behind calamity unless he has revealed that to be the case. Now God is certainly sovereign over the earth and its happenings and he is by his very nature the righteous judge. It is he who judges both individuals and nations alike. And biblically we do see evidence of events like the great flood or the fire and brimstone that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah That show that God does sometimes act through judgment in natural events. But we cannot simply presume that the moments of our great tragedy that we encounter in life. Are likewise acts of God's judgment against sin when he has not revealed them to be such. Indeed it's a dangerous thing for us to speak for God when he has not spoken. In fact, sometimes God uses tragedies to bring forth a greater outcome. A greater greater sort of outcome than we could even imagine had the tragedy not occurred. Sometimes when the walls come crashing down, the missionaries come rushing in. Doors that were once closed are open. Sinners who would not otherwise have entertained the gospel become seekers looking for answers. That's what happened to the blind man in John chapter 9. That's, that's when Jesus saw this man who had been blind from birth as he passed by. And as his disciples asked him a question. They asked, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he would be born blind? That is, they too, Jesus' disciples, those who were with him on the earth, those who walked everywhere where he went, presumed that the tragedy that individuals face here on earth was a result of sin. But Jesus answered it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him and that man went on to trust in Christ as a result of the tragedy that he had dealt with since birth. Not only that he gave bold testimony to Christ's grace to the enemies of Christ in his day. And when great earthly tragedy strikes, we cannot presume to know whether God might have some work of judgment or some work of greater good, which he, as the sovereign ruler of the universe, intends to bring about through that event. Therefore, our responsibility is not to decide who is guilty of sin or who is benefiting of God's blessings in the end. But Jesus does make it obvious that there's one area where we must focus our consideration when it comes to tragedy that arises. Because atrocity is not the greatest tragedy. That's why he says in verse 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I heard about a guy who was just learning how to play golf. He teed off and his ball went off of the fairway into the rough. And it came to rest in the middle of a red ant hill. Well, this new golfer found his ball, he took his stance, and he took a swing. But he completely missed the ball, and ants went flying everywhere. He tried again, and he missed again. And once again, he launched ants into the local orbit everywhere. After a third swing and a miss, one of the ants who was scurrying around on the ground trying to avoid the club, said to another one, if we're going to live, we've got to get on the ball. (laughs) Christ's response to those who share this tragic news was to force them to consider the practical implications of their thought. Namely, that if God judges sin with calamity, then they'd better get on the ball or they too were going to face a perishing of a sort that we're going to talk about here in a moment but that my friends is a truth that you can take to the bank because the proper question all of us should be asking is not why did these people die the proper question we ought to be asking is what right do i have to live unless you repent you will all likewise perish this text tells us that's the words of jesus in fact we should have all perished already We should have all already been the subjects of God's wrath. He created us for his glory. But we've all sinned against him. That's the message of the Bible. Consistently portrayed from Genesis chapter 3 on. Read the book of Job and you'll find that even the most righteous man on earth has no case against God. For God is perfectly just to afflict that man with terrible suffering without answering to anyone for what he does. And you know, sometimes we talk and in our conversations, we'll use words like good people or innocent children, but these are really only relative terms. Sure, some people might be better than others in a relative sort of sense, but not one of us is good in relation to God. Every one of us is born with an evil heart. Even the most righteous man on earth is a sinner who deserves God's righteous judgment. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we read in Romans three twenty three. So the question we ought to ask is, what right do I have to live? And the reality is, we have none. If it were not for God's mercy, we would not be breathing the breath that we breathe. And so, to state this plain and simple, we've all sinned. None of us has lived up to God's mandate of total perfection. We're all sinners. You and I deserve nothing but wrath from God. This righteous God who is holy and pure in his character owes us nothing more than that. And so when tragedy strikes in your life, in my life, it's what all of us already had coming. In fact, I should think that if there were no tragedies on earth, if there were no sickness and sorrow and death and disease then I think we would all be perfectly content to go about our lives without pursuing the God who created us and longs for us to live in relationship with him out of his great love for us. And that would be an even greater tragedy than being wrongfully executed by a tyrant governor. You see, Jesus leaves us no question that we are sinners and we need to get on the ball because atrocity is not the greatest tragedy furthermore I secondly want you to see that accidents are not the greatest tragedy to convey this truth Jesus brings up another account from recent history for those who are here in the crowd so that they can chew on this account as well again we have no extra biblical information of this tragic event but from what we see here in Luke chapter 13 we find that a tower had fallen on some Jews in the town of Siloam and some tower it must have been because when this tower fell it killed 18 of them there's no mention of anyone knocking the tower over in malice this was purely an accident still it was a tragedy that left 18 people dead and it must have been on the minds of the whole crowd for Jesus brings this tragic accident up as another example for the crowd to consider Could an incident like this, could an accident that took place killing individuals like this be an indicator that God had found the Jews standing under that tower to somehow be more sinful than their fellow patriots? Or as Jesus asked the question in verse 4, do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed were the worst were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem. And once again, Christ makes it clear that's not the case. He says in verse 5, I tell you no. Once again, he issues the personal mandate for those who are listening. A personal mandate that extends to you and to me. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now with some biblical texts, it takes a lot of prayerful study in order to understand what God would have us to do as we seek to live out what his desire is for us in our lives based on that text and it can be difficult to, to translate the message of the bible into something that would ultimately translate into our own lives as we seek to live in accordance with God's word but I think I've mastered the translation for our time and for our place coming out of this passage in these words of Jesus are you ready for it unless you repent you will all likewise perish it's that simple to perish means to die and the bible teaches that death is a result of sin way back before the first sin was committed by mankind god said to adam and eve in genesis chapter 2 16 and 17 from any tree of the garden you may freely eat but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it what do you you remember what it said would happen you will surely die. That's right. Sin brings God's curse. The Bible teaches that man's sin was the cause of God's curse on creation. And so all natural earthly tragedies, floods and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and droughts and epidemics and diseases and accidents, all of these stem from man's rebellion against God. Only when God brings forth the new heavens and the new earth, only then when the curse is eradicated will he wipe away every tear from our eyes. Only then will death be eradicated from the presence of the redeemed. Only then will this curse be wiped out. But until then, the end result of God's curse for mankind is death. And the Bible states that in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But what well, you may not realize that there are three types of, types of death that appear in the text of the Bible. And all three types of death are the result of sin. First, there's the one that's most natural to us. It's, it's physical death. That is, sin brings physical, bodily death. This is the death that we're most familiar with here on earth as we face the loss of our loved ones, as we grieve through their funerals. And sin is to blame for that type of death. When God issued his curse to sinful mankind back in Genesis 3.19, he said, you are dust, and to dust you will return. That's a curse of physical death. But there's also a curse, secondly, of of spiritual death in the Bible. For God's word describes the natural man as dead, even while his body is alive and well, even while his heart is pumping blood through his synapses and sinews he is dead and if we take that idea back to Genesis chapter 2 in that passage we looked at just a moment ago you'll recall that God told Adam and Eve concerning that forbidden tree on the day that you eat of it you will surely die now if you've read through Genesis you know that Adam lived for many years after that physically he and Eve lived many years after they committed the original sin So what happened to Adam and Eve on that day? That day on which they surely died. They certainly died just as God said they would. But their death was in fact a spiritual death. It was a death that resulted in separation from God. Death always brings separation. Physical death is a separation from our bodies of the spirit. Spiritual death is a separation from God. No longer did Adam and Eve enjoy God's immediate presence there in the garden. Rather they were banished from the garden of Eden Separated from fellowship with him Likewise as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus In Ephesians 2 All those who are without Christ are dead In their trespasses And sins And then there's one final type of death We find in the Bible That's what I would describe as final death And final death Which is sometimes also referred to as eternal death Or the second death (coughs) Is really just what happens When physical death and spiritual death coincide in an individual. For when an individual who is apart from God in spiritual death encounters physical death, his or her opportunity for being reconciled to God is over in that moment. In final death, spiritual death is extended and it is finalized. The individual who physically dies while he or she is apart from Christ will be eternally separated from God. And the Apostle John spoke of the final judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Following the resurrection of the righteous, the dead will be raised for judgment, along with death itself and Hades. And in his journal of the vision that he saw that God revealed to him of these events to come that we, record, we have recorded in the, in the book of Revelation, John wrote these words, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire what we read in revelation 20 verses 14 and 15 you see the lake of death is the eternal consequence of those who have experienced physical death while they remained spiritually dead and eternal death is the permanent destination deliberately chosen by every sinner while he or she is still alive this final death is the type of death that Jesus refers to in this passage when he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And final death is a greater tragedy than a tragedy brought about by accidents, like a wall falling on you and killing you. Because you can face the tragedy of an accident or even an atrocity and still be in a right relationship with God such that your spiritual death is not extended forever. Forever. But those who refuse to repent will likewise face physical death. I don't know if you've looked at the statistics on death lately, but one out of one person's dies, okay? And so we're all going to face that. That's why Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But those who refuse to repent face this penalty of physical death that does not allow them the opportunity to be reconciled from their spiritual death. And so we find, thirdly and ultimately, that a refusal to respond to God's grace is the greatest tragedy. How can we ever escape such a death? Again, the message is clear unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And so that leads us to ask how can I repent? How do I go about doing this thing? What is repentance? well repentance is a conviction of sin but it's more than just being convicted about your sin it's more than just feeling sorry for what you've done against God Paul preached to Felix this official in Rome until he literally trembled under his conviction Felix did but he didn't turn his life over to Christ you see Felix was convicted but he did not repent repentance is a confession of sin but it's more than just that too Many men in the Bible confessed their sin and literally said, I have sinned. But they did not repent. When God sent a plague of hell on Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh cried out to Moses and Aaron saying, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one and I and my people are the wicked ones. But when God relented of this plague, Pharaoh went right back to his same old tricks there in Exodus chapter 9. He had confession, but he had no commitment. And the word that is translated repentance in this passage literally means a change of mind. But the biblical concept of repentance runs deeper than just changing your mind about something. Repentance is a change of mind, but it's a change that flows out into the way that we live. It's a change that causes us to make a 180-degree turn in our lives. When we we repent, we, we turn away from the foolish and the vain things of this life by which we were originally opposed to God and we turn to Christ as the one who offers us redemption, as the one who offers us forgiveness, as the one who models for us what it's like to live in obedience to God. And so this... There's two sides to this idea of repentance. There's a the negative side in which we turn away from sin, but there's also this positive side of turning to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And unless you've turned to Jesus, you have not repented you must tell God that you're sorry for your sin and turn to Jesus who offers you forgiveness and salvation. You must turn to Jesus who has borne your sorrows, who's been acquainted with your griefs, who has stood in your place to bear the condemnation that you deserve. True repentance is nothing less than that. than abandoning my own efforts to do it my own way and to try and earn salvation on my own and saying only Jesus can do this for me. Only Christ is righteous enough to present me before God holy and blameless and not deserving of his judgment but praise God the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come for this very reason to give you restoration to offer you hope to give you life to save you Jesus came to save by his sinless life by bearing the judgment that you deserve and so ultimately this is a call for us to repent And I can say with full confidence that if you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus for forgiveness, I can tell you by the truth of the word of God that he will save you. But you can't cling to the things of sin and to the Lord Jesus at the same time. He calls for us to repent. He calls for us to turn. And so know this, if, if the Galileans who were on their way to offer their sacrifices on this day had known that they were about to face this life-ending wrath of their governor, if they had known that their streets would soon be soaked with their own blood, intermingled with the blood of the animals that they were herding in, then surely they would have sought refuge Had the workers on this tower in Siloam been able to peel back the veil concerning the things to come, had they known for certain that the great tower that was hovering above them would soon fall on their heads with great devastation in the aftermath, surely they would have abandoned their work. Surely they would have run to safety. And my friends, God, purely out of his generous heart, has granted to you a greater privilege than that of the Galileans and that of the tower workers because you know the peril that is around the bend. Through Christ, God has given you a full knowledge of the fate that awaits. And so hear his message loud and clear. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you abandon your sinfulness and cling to the Son of God, you will no doubt face the wrath of the highest governor of any and every land. Unless you turn from your sinful preoccupations and set your mind's attention and your heart's affection on God and embrace Jesus Christ as the only hope of the forgiveness of your sins and for the hope of eternal life, then condemnation will fall upon you with a devastation far greater than what you would face if earth's tallest building came crumbling down on your head. But the time to pursue God is now. Jesus drives that home with a parable that we find in verses 6 through 9. In this parable, he likens our opportunity to produce the fruit of the gospel in repentance and faith to a man who owned a fig tree, which had been planted in a vineyard that he also owned. This man came to his fig tree, which, by the way, was a tree that he had planted. It was a tree that he had watered. It was a tree that had remained safe from home from harm by by the walls of protection that he had built up around it with his vineyard. It was was a tree that he provided a gardener to to nurture. But when the vineyard owner came to his tree looking for fruit, verse 6 says he didn't find any. And so the vineyard owner seeks to have a word with the vineyard keeper, the gardener. And he tells that gardener, behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? That's a message of judgment. And it makes good sense when we're talking about a tree in a vineyard. I mean, why would you continue to water and nurture and occupy good space in a place where you could be growing trees that are producing fruit when you've got a tree in the vineyard that's not doing what it was put there to do in the first place? I mean, that makes sense to us when we think about trees in a garden. But I hope you see the analogy because it's an analogy for you and me now there's a direct tie in this parable to israel and that israel many times through the bible is referred to as god's vine and he being the vine keeper tending to his vine he's tending to his chosen people he's nurtured them he's protected them he set them aside so that you might call them to be kingdom of priests to his name and all of this is culminating that God has sent his son at this moment as Jesus is preaching to live among them for three years of ministry but still they refuse him still they refuse to analyze this present time as we saw at the end of Luke chapter 12 and thereby come to Christ in repentance and faith and so God's ready to exercise his judgment against this unrepentant people but generous patience From God, his own display as the vineyard keeper pleads for the tree that he still hopes will produce fruit. And so he says to the vineyard owner, let it alone, sir, for this year too until I dig around it and put in fertilizer, and if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. That is, the vineyard keeper, the gardener, wants to give the tree one last chance, not only. Is he extending this grace? He is investing of himself in order to give the tree every opportunity to do what the tree was planted to do. Do you hear the gospel message in this, my friends? Christ, our gardener, has come to us. He has fertilized the soil in which we live with the the eternal life that he offers through his own blood. When we were dead and incapable of producing fruit through our sinfulness, He made the way. He lived the sinless life we could not live. He died the death we deserve to die. And now He has risen as the victor over death. And He invites us to produce the fruit of the gospel. He invites us to find true life. He invites us to escape final death. But judgment is coming and this may be your last chance to respond. Tragedy may strike you out of nowhere, and unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The Bible says in Second Peter three nine, the Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so Jesus has fertilized the soul, my friends. He's provided all that's needed. He's done all the work himself. He simply calls for you to respond in faith. And you know what there, there's one peculiar thing about this parable that Jesus leaves out. Do you know what it is? He doesn't give us the conclusion of this parable. We don't know what happened to this tree. And so we ask, you know, did the tree bear fruit? Did the extended grace of the gardener result in a change for this tree? In the end, was the tree spared or was it cut down? And Jesus leaves this parable open-ended because the reality is only you can answer how this parable will end for your life. God has extended all the grace that is needed. What we could not do on our own, he has paved the way by doing himself And now we simply call for you to come to him in faith. And so will you produce the fruit that the vineyard owner requires? The timing of your decision to repent is urgent. You and I know no more about when our days will end than the 22 individuals who were killed by a coward with a gun in El Paso, Walmart a few weeks ago. God is seeking fruit. He will accept no substitutes. And your extended period of grace may soon be over. And so the time to repent is now. Hear God's most merciful message. There's still time for you to turn from your sin. And turn from your unbelief. And to turn from your pending destruction. And I feel certain that if we could see the eternal calamity from which God is offering us an escape. Then we would all hear this message of Jesus as the most precious message in the world because Jesus uses the tragedies of this world to point to a greater tragedy that awaits us if we reject his grace and refuse to repent that's why I ask you will you acknowledge the fleeting nature of this life and come to him today the opportunity is so richly yours my friends because Jesus has paved the way Jesus has offered the fertilizer. Jesus has extended the grace that's needed. And so, let us heed the words of our master. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You know, there's there's an element of repentance that continues on in the life that we live even after we've come to Christ. And that we're constantly finding ourselves tugging between the world that is around us and the flesh that is within us and the evil powers which would seek to draw us astray. And there's constantly this need to be turning, to reorienting, of of refocusing our efforts on pursuing Christ. But praise be to God, He is loving and merciful and forgiving. And so if there's a need in your life to come to Him for a first-time decision or to return to Him from some bad decisions you've been making on your own, I want you to know in the full confidence of God's Word that He stands ready to receive you. He stands ready to welcome you. He is the author of life and He will set you free from the second death and from the death of a testimony that's lived apart from Him, even though you maybe made a decision for Him in the past. So let's take the opportunity that is before us to respond as He would direct us.